Hello and welcome back to the Killer Kind Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. And welcome to the podcast if this is your first time hearing my voice. Thank you for being here and I hope you'll stick around for future episodes. Now, I won't bore you with a long intro, but I'm excited to be back from vacation. And I've got a case today that has honestly bothered me for so many years. I first heard about this case when the guys over at True Crime Garage covered it. It was fascinating and disturbing for so many reasons, but mainly because of the surveillance footage and the bizarre behavior of the young woman we'll be talking about today. Today's episode is about the disappearance of Emma Philippoff, a 26-year-old Canadian woman who struggled with her mental health for years and especially after her parents divorced. But when she talks about being harassed and stalked by a man, the search for the truth is that much more troubling. So without further ado, let's get into it and let's try to figure out what could have happened to the beautiful soul that is Emma Philippoff. Emma Philippoff was born on January 6th, 1986 in Perth, Canada to her parents, Shelley and James Philippoff. Emma was sort of the middle child. She had two older siblings, Matthew and Erica, and a younger brother, Alexander. Perth was a fairly small town, a tight-knit community, if you will, and in 2021, it had a population of about 6,000. Emma was known as a free spirit. She was known to be pretty quiet and kept to herself, but despite that, she had many friends who she loved. She was known to keep her own emotions private, but she was a magnet to others, and she was a great listener and an even better friend. Now, her free spirit didn't just shine outside of her home. She definitely followed her own rules at home as well. Her mother was the more strict parent. Her dad was a little more like Emma. They both had a naturally creative spirit. Eventually, Emma got tired of following her mother's rules and decided to move out at the age of 16. Apparently, she didn't like having a curfew, so she moved in with her friend Ellen. But when she realized Ellen's mother also had a curfew for her kids, she decided to move out once again. This was when Emma moved into an apartment with an older man. The two weren't in a relationship. However, she did start dating a 26-year-old man around this time. Being such a young, beautiful girl, she definitely attracted a lot of attention from older men. It was also around this time that Emma quit school and got a job at a local video store. Again, Emma lived by the beat of her own drum. And being a mom, I feel bad for her mother because you know she tried so hard to tame her daughter, but she just couldn't. Now, let me add something that you should know about Emma that I'm sure you'll start to learn the further we get into her story. So Emma struggled with her mental health from as early as 11 years old. She kept a journal and several journals throughout her childhood and her life, and it really showed how much she struggled with things that she always sort of kept hidden inside. Now, Emma missed her family after she moved out, especially her younger brother, Alexander, who she was the closest with. Alexander wanted to see his sister too, so eventually Shelly agreed to let the two hang out once a week at the video store where she worked. 
On Sunday afternoons, Shelly would drop Alexander off at her work and the two would watch movies together. When Shelly would come to pick him up, she would bring Emma toiletries and little things she was sure she was struggling to afford. Finally, though, after about eight months of living on her own, she moved back home with her family. The only thing was that she didn't want to go back to her old high school, so she wanted to go to an alternative high school. Her mother reluctantly agreed, but she wanted her daughter back home, so she granted her wish. And Emma excelled at this new school, and she earned really good grades. Her grades earned her a scholarship to the Loyalist College in Belleville, which is where she studied photojournalism. And the next few years and her life in her early 20s was full of adventure. She received her degree in photojournalism. Then she moved to China to teach English. Coming back to Canada, she received another degree in culinary arts. Although her life was full of adventure at the time, she wasn't in the best place mentally. Her parents divorced when Emma was in her early 20s, and it was a bitter divorce. Her dad actually left her mom for a younger woman. This was extremely hard on Emma and her siblings. Emma loved to write, and she liked to write poems especially. So during this difficult time, she wrote a poem about her parents' divorce. It said, My parents' marriage is in shambles. My father turning to me. My mother hating us both, and me always a good listener. Too nice to say it hurt me, too. In another poem around the same time, she wrote, I chased death all my life because I was dead. Sleeping was an escape from all the pain, and stories were the sweet music rain. I love my mom, but I could not cause her pain, which is ugh, just troubling to hear. So as we're learning, Emma was a pretty troubled young woman, but she was always described as whimsical and kind-hearted, who was still very positive despite everything she was going through. She enjoyed the arts and dancing and even traveling. After her parents' divorce, she moved around a lot, although everyone who knew Emma knew she wanted to see the world, so they weren't really surprised. When Emma initially left her parents' home in Perth, she didn't really have a plan, but she knew this was something that she needed to do. She wanted to get out of her hometown and just go somewhere else, which I think we can all relate to at times. In the fall of 2011, Emma made the move to Victoria, British Columbia, which was completely across the country from Perth, Ontario, where she grew up. But it was her dream to live out west, Again, I feel like it's similar to us Americans who always wanted to move out west to California to live that Southern California life or out west to be like a cowboy, you know? So at the age of 25, she was making that dream a reality. She had no home or job lined up, but she was going to make it happen. She told her friends and family that she had a feeling something amazing was about to happen in Victoria. After moving to Victoria, Emma lived with a childhood friend for a few months, eventually moving to another unit in the same apartment building. Reportedly, Emma's friend found her new roommate one night obsessively arranging objects in her room into different patterns as a sort of ritual. This happened on more than one occasion, and many times she insisted 
that others participate in this ritual with her. One night, that friend also found Emma outside, and she was, quote, in a euphoric state, high on the grass and the stars. Her friend quickly became worried about Emma when she saw this, so she called Emma's father, James. James called his daughter and offered to fly her home, but Emma was mad that her friend told her dad and said she didn't want to come home. I don't know if this incident is what caused Emma to move out of that friend's apartment or not, but it definitely could have been. Supposedly, James never told Emma's mother, Shelly, about this. Shelly said had she had known, she would have flown out to check on her daughter immediately. In the winter of 2011, she got a job as a barista at a cafe, but that job didn't last long. After two or three months, she decided she just wanted to wander around, moving in with another friend for a few months. She did some couch surfing as well, and then she lived at a hotel called Hotel 760, where she also worked cleaning the rooms. She then stayed on like two or three boats at various times. She camped out in the woods at one point and sometimes slept in a tree. And this was just the kind of person Emma was. She wanted to live her life as free as possible and didn't really let anything hold her back. From February to November 2012, she stayed in the attic of the Sandy Merriman Women's Shelter on a rotating basis, usually for about a month at a time. Now, this was something she did not tell her family. She mainly spoke to her family through email, and she definitely painted a happy picture. She knew that they would worry if she mentioned living in a women's shelter, so she kept that part a secret. And I think she probably was happy, but she was such a private person that nobody could really know how she was feeling around this time. While living at the women's shelter, though, she did get a seasonal job at a seafood restaurant called Redfish Bluefish, where she was employed during the busy months that summer through the end of October. When the season came to an end, Emma promised that she'd be back next year. So they fully expected her to come back that spring and work during the 2013 busy season. And really, Emma made a life for herself in Victoria, and she was hopeful for her future there. By the fall of 2012, she had made lots of friends, and the many friends she made in different circles described her as free-spirited, creative, adventurous, giving, soft-spoken and private, yet independent, trusting, flighty, highly sensitive to people, but very brave. She had one relationship with a male in Victoria, but apparently the two only dated three months and things ended on a mutually positive note. It was reported that she enjoyed drinking and socializing with her friends, but her lifestyle started to change by the end of that summer. She was reportedly in search of a more pure lifestyle. She started to quit drinking around June and also cut out cigarettes, coffee, and sugar. There were some reports that claimed she had occasionally smoked marijuana, but other reports never saw her take any kind of drug. So take that with a grain of salt. Either way, she was no longer smoking anything of any kind. She also became vegan around this time as well, and 
Not only that, by late summer, she was eating less and less, but also drinking tons and tons of water daily. Some of the women at the shelter said that she would drink gallons and gallons of water a day. So a little alarming. I was watching the Mile Higher podcast video on YouTube about Emma's case. I know I'm pretty sure I watched this when it came out about six months ago, but I rewatched it after deciding to cover this case today because I remember liking a lot of their insight on this case. In that episode, they talked about Emma's water intake and the change in her eating habits. And they talked about the possibility of water intoxication and a possible eating disorder, both of which could explain some of her strange behavior around the day of her disappearance, which we're definitely going to get into here in a sec. I'll leave a link to that episode in the show notes, and I'll leave the timestamp for when they start to talk about that in particular. But Anyways, moving on. So a friend who also worked at the seafood restaurant said Emma grew very thin and described her as becoming monk-like in her social and eating habits. And speaking of social habits, her friend said that she started to withdraw a lot. As I've mentioned, she had been very social up until this point, but she stopped showing up to anything she was invited to. She was actually invited to Mexico by one of her friends, and at the last minute, she backed out. And if there's one thing we've learned about Emma is that she loves to travel. So she normally would have never turned this a trip like this down. It was shortly after venturing into this pure lifestyle that Emma seemed to really begin to struggle. Her friend said she became more and more distant and started being fearful and even paranoid. However, at the time, her friends felt that she was having trouble maybe adapting to the changing seasons. And by the beginning of the fall, she seemed very unsure about where to go and what to do with herself in the upcoming winter months. Now, a lot of us know that to be seasonal depression. I have friends that go through that. I I can't say that I've gone through that necessarily because I kind of love the winter and I love the fall, but I get it. I, I definitely get how you can go there. And Emma herself was more of the barefoot on the beach type of girl, as she was described. So I could see her wanting to get out of there when it got too cold to sleep outside under the stars. Earlier that summer, though, Emma had purchased a van with the intention of living in it and traveling around. Staff from a nearby storage facility remember seeing Emma beaming with joy the day she moved her personal belongings from the locker to her new van. However, the van ultimately caused more problems than anything else. It ended up having to be towed a few times, multiple times. And her friends said there were a few different occasions where Emma was asked or Emma was asking for an inexpensive mechanic. Ultimately, she was never able to go anywhere in her van. So her dream of traveling and being on her own was sort of starting to unravel. And it also seemed like her life in general was unraveling, and nobody really knew why. As I've already mentioned, Emma struggled with her mental health from a very early age. But according to a few of her friends, Emma started experiencing ongoing stress and paranoia related to feeling harassed by someone she had a bad experience with years prior. 
when she was in Campbell River, British Columbia, she studied culinary arts. This was back in 2008 and 9. And this is when the incident happened. Now, she did not ever really provide details, nor did she reveal the identity of the person that harassed her, but it was definitely a male. She wrote about her experience in her journal as well, but again, didn't really identify this guy. A former roommate recalls Emma expressing the need to avoid social situations where she had to interact with men, the main reason she chose not to stay in co-ed shelters. Those who knew her in Victoria say she was very friendly and sociable. However, by November 2012, she started to retreat, like I mentioned, and they noticed a dramatic change in her behavior around this time. Not only did she start distancing herself from her friends, her overall behavior became concerning. Her friends in Victoria started noticing signs of extreme paranoia and depression. Staff at the women's shelter said that she started having her curtains drawn at all times. At one point, the staff had to actually call the police. When it was discovered, Emma was frantically moving furniture from the shelter out to the curb and across the street because she claimed they were making too much noise and saying things to her. This behavior led the shelter staff to suspect she might be suicidal or suffering from mental illness. Due to privacy laws, the staff were never able to reach out to family members, so their only choice was to call the police to request a mental health check. But of course, the police didn't really do anything. I mean, there wasn't much they could do, they said. When they got the call, they simply told the owners of the shelter to call back if her behavior got any worse. Just two weeks before Emma's disappearance, one of her friends recalled driving by the shelter and seeing Emma looking cold and wet, standing motionless, staring blankly at a murder of crows nearby. Let me pause for the cause. Did you know that a group of crows were called a murder? I'm sorry. It's a little too fitting for this podcast, and I don't like it. I, maybe I knew that, and I just forgot. I don't know. It just, it was weird. I I didn't like it, but I saw this quote from her friend, and I was like, that's a little chilling. But anyways, I digress. Now, after these series of events, one of Emma's friends encouraged her to spend less time at the women's shelter by getting a membership at the local YMCA and told her to hang out at the library as much as possible. She also highly suggested that Emma call her mother. And this is where things kind of take a turn and kind of where our case really starts today. So the security footage that we first see of Emma is taken at the YMCA. And it's one of the strangest things about this case is all of this suspicious activity and the, and the odd behavior captured on CCTV footage during the days leading up to the day she pretty much just vanishes. So on Tuesday, November 20th, Emma left to go to the YMCA to get her membership. Once she's there, and over the course of 14 minutes, Emma entered and exited the building four times. 
She pauses for about a minute each time she enters and exits. As always, I'll leave a link to the CCTV footage in the show notes. It's not the whole 14 minutes. I could only find like a 30-second clip. I don't know if the full full footage hasn't been released or what, but either way, you'll be able to see Emma in this moment. But in case you don't go watch it, in the footage, you can see Emma is bundled up with her long pants, a jacket, gloves, a scarf, and a beanie, which I'm told... I'm told, which I've read, she likes to wear knitted hats a lot. That's kind of like her thing. Now, as well as carrying a tote bag or a purse over her shoulder. Now, as she walks in and out, it looks like she's looking outside for something or someone. She pauses just inside the YMCA doors and stares out of the window for a minute. And then she walks back outside. She does this several times. And the repetitive behavior is just odd, to say the least. But you can tell she looks nervous and jittery or anxious in a way. The following day, Wednesday the 21st, Emma calls a tow truck driver and arranges to be picked up from the women's shelter. She was having her van towed to Sook, British Columbia. Don't don't quote me on that pronunciation. Um, specifically to the 700 block of Burdett Avenue in Victoria. Throughout the drive, the tow truck driver said Emma was very upbeat. She explained to him that she was going to surprise her family by moving back home to Perth. She seemed excited, and she said her family would be very excited as well. Two days later, on the 23rd, Emma called her mom at around midnight. Emma was in tears, And she told her mom that she wanted to come home. Shelly obviously was concerned, but she assured her daughter she was always welcome home and she could make the necessary arrangements for her to come home at any time. Emma anxiously asks if her mom is booking the flight and her mom said yes. Emma would not say what was bothering her, but tells her mom she is safe. However, Emma called back the next day insisting that she would stay in Victoria and work things out on her own. Now, this became a cycle over the next several days. From Friday the 23rd to Wednesday the 28th, Emma would call her mom in tears, saying she wanted to come home, but then the next day she'd call changing her mind. Finally, on the 27th, Emma is forced to move her van once again. So this time she has it towed to the Chateau Victoria Hotel. Supposedly, on this day, Emma's mom is still concerned about her daughter, so she dials the number her daughter had been calling her from, and it's a phone at the Sandy Merriman Women's Shelter. When she calls, she is shocked to find out that it is, in fact, a women's shelter and that Emma had been living there off and on for almost a year. Emma calls her mom later that night, and at this point, she makes the comment that she wanted to come home but that she might need some help packing her stuff. So, Shelly doesn't mention what she's found out, but she definitely offers to come out to Victoria and help pack Emma up. However, on the 28th, Emma calls once again at 4 a.m. to tell her mom not to come. And her mom said that this time her voice sounded different. 
She said she didn't sound desperate. She wasn't crying. She was just very calm, but still sounded very sad, different than she had in previous calls. She told her mom, quote, don't come, not today. One of the last things Emma said to her mom was, I don't know how to face you, or I don't know how I can face you, which worried Shelly even more. So Shelly told her daughter, don't worry, I won't come. However, she decided to book the flight anyway. She knew something was wrong with her daughter. At 7 a.m. that morning, just a few hours after this phone call with her mom, Emma leaves the Sandy Merriman shelter and goes to her van in the Chateau Victoria parking lot. She finds a note on her van saying that it would be towed if it wasn't moved. According to the parking attendants, Emma was very upset by this and she begged for at least one more day, which they ultimately agreed to. At 8.23 a.m., Emma is seen at a 7-Eleven on the corner of Douglas and Humboldt Street where she uses her debit card to purchase a $200 prepaid credit card, which is strange. She is seen wearing a beige winter jacket, camo pants, and her hair is tied up in a bun. She is she appears to be carrying several bags over her shoulder, including her orange purse. She lingers in the store by the doors nervously, peering out the window just like she did at the YMCA almost a week ago. At 10 a.m., while riding the bus, a man named Julian Ward, again, that is not how you pronounce his name. He's French. That's as good as you're going to get from me, (laughs) from Alabama, United States. (laughs) Um, This guy, Julian, claims to see Emma on Pandora Street, across from Alex Golden Hall. We'll get into Julian a little bit later, but the two knew each other. He gets off the bus a few stops early to talk to Emma, who is standing on the edge of the sidewalk, one step away from the road. She is wearing a puffy, light-colored coat. Her hoodie is pulled up over her head, and he noticed she was carrying several bags. He decided to go register for his health card at a nearby business, which was his original plan, being on that bus in the first place. As he's walking by, he noticed Emma is just staring blankly straight ahead not moving. And when he registered his card and came back outside, he noticed Emma is in that exact same position and has the same emotionless stare. So he walks over to her and asks if she needs any help. She shook her head no, but Julian decided to stick around for a little while before moving on. He said he never made, he said she never made any movement. She remained in that same stoic position He saw her in the first time. So, again, a little bit disturbing behavior. Some people reported seeing Emma at the library sometime around noon. So, as you can tell, we're kind of getting into a timeline here. This is the day that Emma is really last seen, or it's confirmed that she's last seen. So, stay with me. So, she's supposedly seen at the library around noon. Then, one of her friends sees her at the Our Place Soup Kitchen on Pandora Street sometime between 12 and 1 p.m. This friend also approached Emma at the time and she said she didn't feel good that she couldn't talk at the moment. Her friend asked if she needed a hug and her reaction was 
alarming. He said she looked at him and gave him an uncharacteristic, horrified expression and walked away from him quickly. There were several more sightings of Emma that afternoon. Again, they're not confirmed, but they were all reported to police and mentioned on the website that Emma's family has set up for her. At 1 p.m., an eyewitness sees Emma looking vacant-eyed again, slowly shuffling along Pandora Street. So, I'm going to I'm going to conclude that these are all confirmed sightings cuz she's exactly where all these other witnesses have claimed her to be and people that know who she is. So, I'm going to say this is Emma. So, we see Emma at 1 p.m. on Pandora Street. They said she wasn't wearing a hat and her hair looked freshly washed. They said she was carrying several white plastic bags an orange satchel or her purse like other like previously reported and she was wearing some camo pants and fleece jacket again like we know she was wearing earlier that day the witness later reports the sighting to police and the victoria police department recalls calls the witness back and takes the full report two people reported seeing emma on douglas street sometime in the afternoon they too were concerned about her strange behavior They said she was walking back and forth in the street looking confused and lost. They called police who took the report. And according to Help Find Emma Philippoff website, they said it's unclear if this report was ever followed up on, but that this was the first 911 call that had been made that day. The witnesses recall her wearing shoes, though they later heard from others who saw Emma that day wandering around barefoot in the street. There was another witness that reported seeing Emma walking downtown with an older man. They did not provide a description of the man, and from what I understand, this guy has never been identified. But continuing on with the sightings of Emma. So, a man who visited the Rock Bay Shelter claims he saw Emma there at some point that afternoon. Again, no details were provided. Now, this was a shelter that Emma had previously refused to stay at as it was a co-ed shelter. So that part was a little concerning. Why is she somewhere that she had always refused to be? From 4 to 6 p.m., Emma is seen by the same person at two different locations. This witness said they first saw her as they exited the main Douglas Street doors of the Bay Center. She was moving slowly northward on the west side of Douglas Street. And then about 45 minutes later, the same eyewitness is in a car this time, and they stop at the corner of Douglas and Finlayson Street and see Emma crossing the street in front of them. They claimed she looked over and saw it was them, someone she recognized, and gave a, quote, sad smile. They reported this to the VPD on November 30th. And according to the timeline giving on the family's website, supposedly police took the eyewitnesses' contact information but never called them back to get a full report. And you'll see that running theme here in this case, which is frustrating as all get out, but can't dwell on that for now. So again, the sightings continue. At 5.54, Emma uses her debit card to purchase a prepaid cell phone. 
This was at the same 7-Eleven that she had purchased the prepaid credit card at early that morning. Video surveillance shows her paying for the phone. Then, uh, once again, she lingers in the store by the doors. She is nervously seen peering outside as if she is afraid to leave or is avoiding someone. It's important to note that the cell phone she purchased has never been activated. Now, this was a pretty big red flag for her friends and family because Emma didn't like cell phones. She didn't like any form of technology, really. She had never had a phone, so when she purchased a pay-as-you-go phone, it was, once again, alarming. She always found ways to call somebody, and she had access to computers to communicate with her family and to write. So why did she need to buy a phone? Even though it was never used, this was just way out of character for Emma. Now at 6 p.m., Emma does go back to the Sandy Merriman home. And this is a confusing part of Emma's story. I mean, I know a lot of this is confusing. Because according to Shelly, she never told anyone at the Sandy Merriman shelter that she was coming to get Emma. And as far as Emma knew, she wasn't coming at all because she had told her not to. However, witnesses at the shelter report Emma becoming very anxious and upset when she is told by a staff member that her mother was on her way. Technically, Shelly was boarding a plane to come see her daughter at this time, but nobody should have known this. But when Emma gets this information, she reportedly storms out of the building. And one of the residents tries to run after her, but quickly loses sight of her. This particular resident reports Emma having mixed feelings of relief and fear about her mom's arrival. At 6.10 p.m., a driver with ABC Taxi picks Emma up near the shelter. She asks him to take her to the airport, but suddenly changes her mind. Despite later finding out that Emma actually had $3,000 in her bank account, or very close to it, She tells him she can't afford the $60 fare and asks him to drop her off exactly where she was picked up. Now, there's a couple questions here, obviously. Number one being, why would she be going to the airport in the first place? Some have speculated that she was trying to leave town before her mother got there. But that's not really how I look at it and and not really how some other people look at it either. I believe she really wanted her mom there, but she didn't want her mom to see her living in the shelter. So I believe she went to the airport or she wanted to go to the airport to wait on her mother and meet her there so that she didn't see her current living situation. The second question is obvious. Why would she say she can't afford the $60 fare when she clearly could? She had money in her bank account and the $200 on that prepaid credit card. That I can't understand, but when the cab driver circled back to where he picked her up, she begged him to let her stay in the cab for a while, just to let her sit there for a minute. He obviously explained that he had to work, and she he couldn't let her do that. But as the two are talking, somebody starts speaking through the driver's dispatch radio, and this made Emma sort of freak out. She becomes very paranoid and asks, Why is there noise coming out of that? 
she seems to panic. So she paid the fare and jumped out of the car and got away from the the taxi as quickly as possible. A few minutes later, at 6.15, an acquaintance of Emma's, Dennis Quay, sees her standing barefoot on a corner, looking disoriented, paranoid, and seemingly unable to cross the street. He asks her if she's looking for someone or if someone was following her. He said she doesn't really say much at all and just keeps looking around. She does ask him to go for a walk with him for a bit. And as the two start walking... She becomes increasingly uncomfortable with his questions because he's asking, like, are you okay? Like, what's going on? Somebody following you? Somebody following us? Like, I'm sure he's asking all the questions. And at this point, though, she starts becoming concerned about him and, like, his intentions and seems to be uncomfortable. So she decides to walk on her own. At approximately 7 p.m., he decides to go into our nearby restaurant near the Empress Hotel to call police and he waits until they arrive. And at this point, Emma is basically just standing out in front of this hotel, not really doing anything, just kind of doing what she was already doing, which was looking around. At 7.17, the police locate Emma. She is, in fact, barefoot and holding her shoes. Two officers speak to Emma for about 45 minutes According to police notes, at no time did Emma engage in an actual like dialogue, but rather answered with one word or nodded her head. It was about 30 minutes before she would even speak and then only gave her name after they insisted. She refused to put her shoes back on and said she was just taking a walk and planned to meet a friend. By 8 p.m., police noticed she was not a threat to herself or anyone else and watched her walk away. Dennis apparently left at some point during this time as well. He assumed that she was in the safe hands talking to police. Now, this was the last confirmed sighting of Emma. According to the family's website, the identities of the two officers are protected by privacy laws and details of the conversation haven't been officially released. However, I did see a short clip of an interview with a member of the VPD who said the two officers that night did ask Emma if she was okay. They asked if she was suicidal or depressed and she answered no. They asked if she was homicidal, if she felt like she would hurt anyone. Again, she said no. Emma said she was just going through a lot right now and needed to take a walk. Shelly has since criticized the officers that saw Emma that night. She said they claimed there was nothing they could do. However, she said they should have used their common sense. You have this young, beautiful woman in a city at night just walking around barefoot. She was clearly very vulnerable. They should have taken her back to the shelter or something. Emma's longtime friend, Mary Flanagan, has spoken out and made a good point about her friend's disappearance. And she said that Emma always attracted some of the most wonderful, but some of the creepiest people. And that is something that worries her because she knows someone could have easily taken advantage of that. And that appears to be the running theme in this case. Her friends and family have said this multiple times, that Emma was a beautiful person inside and out, and she would attract some unwanted attention. So the fear is that she ran into someone 
that she shouldn't have that night. At 11 p.m., Shelly arrives in Victoria and makes her way to the shelter. And she learns that Emma did not claim her bed that night. At first, her mom wasn't really concerned because she knew her daughter had friends that she liked to stay with. But it wasn't until she heard from the other residents and staff members about her daughter's bizarre behavior that she felt something was seriously wrong. So, the shelter calls the police to report Emma missing. Shortly after midnight, police arrive at the shelter to take the report and Emma is officially declared a missing person. Now, again, due to privacy laws, the shelter wasn't much help. They weren't able to give much information, if any, to Shelley about Emma. And eventually, she was asked to leave. So, for the next several days, Shelley is pounding the pavement, looking for her daughter and trying to speak to anyone that knows her. On November 29th, police find Emma's car in the parking lot at the Chateau Victoria. And what they find inside is pretty much all of Emma's possessions, including her passport, laptop, journals, a camera, and several recently borrowed library books. The police then have the car towed to the department. That same day, Shelly visits the shelter during each shift change, and she speaks to the different staff members. Each one explains Emma's behavior in recent days and weeks, her frantically moving furniture outside, her erratic and paranoid behavior, and the cops being called on her at one point. Shelly continued to receive stories from various friends and people that knew Emma, basically saying the same thing, learning more and more about her daughter's bizarre mental state the last month or two at this point. And Shelly was made aware of the different plans that Emma had been making as well. The biggest one being that she was planning on going home and surprising her family. But before this, she had told certain people that she was going to do a few different things. One person she told she was going to go sail a boat to Mexico with some man she barely knew. Yet in mid-November, she told a friend that she was moving to Salt Spring Island Then there were small comments about going to Japan with her dad, then going to Costa Rica, and then to California. I mean, she had lots of ideas. She even told people she was going to live off the grid at one point. I mean, Emma could really be anywhere, based on these stories that she's told her friends. But the biggest theory was that she was getting ready just to go home. But despite all efforts, there was no sign of Emma Philippoff. It's as if she vanished off the face of the earth. Now, that's not to say that there weren't small glimmers of hope here and there. The day after Emma went missing on the 29th, an eyewitness reports seeing Emma at Lifestyle Market on Douglas Street in Victoria. However, that sighting was never confirmed. On December 2nd, an eyewitness reports an odd encounter and once again, unconfirmed sighting of Emma by the Inner Harbor sometime after dark. They claim a young woman approached them and told them to remember the name Emma Philippoff and asks them to repeat the name out loud 
three times. Now, on December 5th, a week after her disappearance, at 11.17 a.m., the $200 prepaid credit card Emma purchased on the 28th is flagged for use at a Petro-Canada gas station on Sook Road. This was huge at the time when police were notified, and so was Emma's mom. They were fully expecting this to be Emma. However, the card was used by an unknown man. He was brought in for questioning, and he was polygraphed by police. He supposedly found the card on the side of the road near Galloping Goose Trail in Colwood, which was about 25 minutes away from Victoria. Now, the man was cleared as a suspect. However, he did make some strange phone calls to Emma's mother on three different occasions. And the gist of these phone calls were him saying that he was apparently drinking on a daily basis at the time he found the card, and he was too drunk that night to remember where he even found it. He said he wasn't sure why the police were telling her exactly where he was and where he found this card, since he wasn't even sure. He did say he knew it was still sealed when he found it, and is certain he waited about a week to use it to buy cigarettes. He sounds to me like he's just a drunk that got involved in something he shouldn't have. I don't think he had anything to do with Emma's disappearance. Still an odd situation, and I feel bad for Shelly, who has probably had to deal with many people like this over the years. It's just sad. But again, I don't think he had anything to do with it, and neither did the police. Now, there was a major search conducted to try to find Emma. It consisted of Emma's friends, family, and local volunteers. They scoured Victoria and the surrounding communities. They searched trails, parks, and smaller islands. According to the family's website, they said the target area widened to include the British Columbia mainland and locations across Canada, as well as the U.S., where possible sightings were reported. They said they continued to receive sightings, but most were determined to be a woman who resembled Emma, although it was never really her. The Victoria PD dive team searched for evidence in the Victoria Inner Harbor, but again, nothing was ever recovered. Early on in the search for Emma, Shelley came across a poem in her daughter's personal belongings. Oddly enough, it was written almost a year to the day that Emma went missing, and this is what it said. To everyone from dead Emma, hello. I figured someone would be on this computer at some point, and we'll read this. Okay, so, I'm dead. Floating about on energy are not watching dying stars, reviving stars, dreaming milky dreams and shadow dancing on your timelines or whatever. Good luck, every heart. Emma. This was deeply concerning, and at first was thought to be believed specifically by investigators, a suicide note. But the only issue with that was it was written almost a year prior. It was eventually ruled out as a suicide note, but again, it was deeply disturbing considering the fact she was now missing. 
For two straight months, Shelly stayed in Victoria, reluctant to come home. She eventually did, and then she hoped her daughter would return eventually. She said she felt it was just a matter of time, that she would turn a corner one day and there she'd be. But that day didn't come. There was hope that Emma would return to her job at Redfish Bluefish. It seemed to be one of the places she thrived at and the one place she enjoyed. So the hope was for Shelly and for her friends and coworkers that Emma would just show up on that day that she was scheduled to start back in February 2013. So Shelly made the trip to Victoria once again and waited for that day to come. But sadly, the day came and went, and there was no sign of Emma. Now, there was one considerable suspect in this case. There's a man that I mentioned earlier, Julian Ward. Again, don't quote me on that French pronunciation. Sorry, Julian. You see, Julian and Emma didn't just know each other. They apparently met in the summer of 2011 back in Perth, Ontario, and Julian basically fell in love with her, but Emma didn't feel the same way. So Emma moved to Victoria and moved on from Julian. However, guess who showed up not long before she disappeared? Julian. Emma's parents found messages from Julian to Emma in the months prior to her disappearance. And they were all very forward, basically. He was very upset that things didn't work out between the two of them. And then just weeks after she disappeared, he sent her a message asking to build her a log cabin in the woods, which would sound kind of romantic if you didn't know the situation, But really, it sounded desperate to those that knew her. And a known fact is that Emma's parents built their family home by hand. And one of the main reasons Emma was struggling was because of her parents' divorce. So it certainly seemed like this was something Emma had told Julian or like shared with him personally. And now he was using it against her in a way. But he was also trying to, it could have come off like he was trying to persuade her to be with him because like, look, I can be like your dad. I can build you a house, you know, that sort of thing. It was creepy if you know the situation. Also, Emma's dad told investigators that Julian had called their house repeatedly after his daughter left for Victoria to the point where it was definitely harassment. He ended up sending an email to Emma's dad apologizing, saying he shouldn't have handled the situation the way he did. And then he makes the comment, I don't want you to think I'm stalking her like last time. So clearly, she had been stalked by this man in the past. Now, he seems to have followed her across the country This also made everyone wonder if this was the incident Emma was referring to back in 2008 or 9 when she said she had been harassed by someone. She never identified the man, but this definitely fits that criteria. Julian was brought in for questioning and polygraphed, as I mentioned earlier. So he was cleared. But despite being cleared by police, he received a lot of criticism and borderline harassment himself online 
people suspected him as having something to do with her disappearance. And this led him to voluntarily take another polygraph test, and once again, he passed. He also did a CBC News interview and in order to clear his name. The whole situation, though, is just creepy and weird. It's hard to argue with two past polygraph tests and being cleared by police. I can't let myself rule him out, though. And the same is said for Emma's friends and family. There are several people that still consider him a possible suspect. But getting back to a few more sightings or potential sightings of Emma over the years, in May 2014 in Gaston, B.C., A man was captured on surveillance footage at a clothing store in downtown Vancouver. He is supposedly holding a crumpled up missing persons poster of Emma Filipoff. He claimed Emma was his girlfriend and just wanted to be left alone. Despite the evidence of the grainy footage, which shows a man in a green shirt with a noticeable limp and sporting flame tattoos on his arm, No one has come forward with information, and police have yet to identify the man. Also in 2014, the CBC's The Fifth Estate launched a Finding Emma media campaign on Twitter, Facebook, and national TV. An active homicide police officer, a forensic psychologist, and a criminologist were members of the team of experts who reviewed the evidence. I'll leave a link to their video on the case in the show notes as well. They're the ones who I just mentioned that interviewed Julian Ward. Now, since 2014, there have been several reported sightings and rumors and theories going around about what could have happened to Emma. A pretty big rumor circulated among friends that she was hitchhiking up and down the island and was doing well. Two people claimed she was panhandling on Commercial Drive in Vancouver. Several witnesses reported her missing person posters being torn down in the downtown east side area. A source at one establishment in that same area believes it was Emma who was seen ripping down her own missing person poster. Then there was a time when staff at a hunting and fishing store reported a woman resembling Emma asking how to disappear. They said she explained she had a stalker who followed her from Ontario to Victoria, then to Vancouver, which is difficult to hear because that certainly sounds like it could be Emma. It definitely makes sense. But knowing she was that scared that she just wanted to disappear is heartbreaking. It couldn't be confirmed, obviously, but that one sticks with me. There have also been sightings in areas of Canada where different family members live, making everyone wonder if she was just trying to get home to her family, even if it wasn't her parents. In early 2016, a friend reported seeing Emma sleeping on the steps of a sort of museum in Kelowna, British Columbia. A volunteer team worked diligently with police to follow up on that particular sighting. However, all of the sightings since the day she went missing remain unconfirmed. But there was a new spark in the case in 2018 
when a witness came forward. A man named William called the Victoria Police Department, claiming he realized recently that he might have had an encounter with Emma Philippoff the day after she went missing. He said that around 5 a.m. on November 29, 2012, he was on his way to work at a new job, and he was running a little late. When he noticed a young woman darting back and forth on the side of the road, she seemed in distress, so he pulled over and she got in his vehicle around Esquimalt Road in Victoria. He noticed she was shoeless and soaking wet, which is a state she's been seen in before. He said it seemed as though she had been walking all night. Her demeanor suddenly shifted to calm and content as soon as she stepped inside his car, which was very odd. He said she asked if he could take her to Colwood to visit a girlfriend. Since he was running late for work, he said he could get her a little bit closer to Colwood, but not all the way there. He said he dropped her off about five to ten minutes later at the intersection of Craig Flower and Admirals, next to a 24-hour gas station. He said the moment she exited the car, her behavior suddenly shifted back to paranoid and erratic as she again darted back and forth in the street before finally taking off in the direction of Colwood. Now, this was obviously strange, a very strange encounter, but he didn't think much of it until he heard about Emma's disappearance years later. Now, the one thing this does corroborate is the sighting of her in Colwood on December 5th, a week after she went missing. Why it took this guy six years to come forward, I don't know. Maybe he honestly didn't hear about Emma's disappearance until six years after the fact, but it's still a little weird. Just speak up when you see something. Call it in. Move on about your day. It may be nothing, but just call it in just to be safe. Anyways, <laughs> I know a lot of people did that in this case, so shout out to those people that came forward and actually said something. All that said, though, he did stay on top of the tip that he gave to the Victoria police. When he realized there was no follow-up to his tip, he got in touch with Emma's mother and a longtime advocate in the search for Emma, a woman named Kimberly Bordage, who interviewed him at length and released a podcast on November 2nd, 2018. It's called The Search for Emma Philippoff. I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but I definitely want to check it out. And I highly recommend you do too. From what I understand, they go through the timeline in depth and it apparently includes never before released information. Sadly, the few possible sightings over the years are just a glimmer of hope in finding Emma. Her mother believes she did develop paranoid schizophrenia, which is definitely believable and highly likely based on her actions. My only problem is that people definitely want to focus on her mental health in this case. And I'm not, I'm not talking about Shelly. I know she's got her own theories and it's more than that. But what I mean is everyone is just focusing on her erratic behavior and in her mental state. And although I definitely believe that's what led to her disappearance. However, people don't just vanish off the face of the earth. And I would hope that Emma would eventually reach out to her family and let them know that she's okay at the very least, 
And it seemed like she did that while she was in Victoria. It's not like she kept in touch every day, but she would send them poems via email and things like that. So it's hard for me to believe that she wouldn't reach out at all if she could. At the time of her disappearance, 26-year-old Emma was 5 foot 5, between 90 to 110 pounds. She had brown eyes, light brown hair, which was always very long. She had no tattoos and no piercings, although her ears were pierced in the past. If you know where Emma is or have any leads that might assist in finding Emma Filipov, you're asked to call Crime Stoppers at one 800 222-8477, which is 1-800-222-TIPS, or call the Victoria Police Department non-emergency number at 250-995-7654. And that is the case of Emma Philipoff. Disappearance cases are always so hard to cover because anybody and everybody that knows the victim and podcasters like myself that cover it, just we want to know answers. We want to help get answers as well. We want a conclusion for this poor family and we want to help bring justice for the victims if we can. And a lot of times it's obvious that foul play was involved. This case though is particularly hard because we can't say for sure that foul play was involved. And we have this beautiful young woman who was troubled and struggled with her mental health. And all we all want to do is just give her a hug. As a true crime podcaster, though, I can't help but believe Emma was met with foul play. I do believe that she was harassed and being stalked. Is that why she disappeared? It definitely could be. And I definitely don't want to point the finger at this Julian guy. He was definitely creepy and seemed to have stalked Emma at some point, but the police have cleared him, so I want to believe that, and I want to believe them. Now, like Emma's friend, Marie Flanagan said, she was a beautiful girl. She attracted some of the best and possibly some of the worst people to her, and being out on the streets, she could definitely run into some suspicious characters. I mean, ladies that are listening, just think about walking back to your car in the dark at night, right? No matter where you are, it's terrifying. It's a little scary, no matter what you do. I mean, that's just kind of how we are as women. Now, imagine being homeless and walking around all night. That would literally be my worst nightmare. All that to say, I pray that Emma is okay. Even if she is living her life on the run and a part of me hopes that is the case, that She's out there just living her life somewhere trying to keep to herself. If that's the case, I pray she reaches out to her family and lets them know she's okay at some point, giving her parents peace of mind. Either way, I'm hopeful that one day she can be found in some way. As always, I want to know your thoughts and what you think might have happened to Emma. Head over to the podcast Instagram page to comment on today's episode post or shoot me a DM and let's chat about it. While you're there, you may notice my last Instagram post. We finally have something you can get your hands on that has the podcast name. We have stickers of the Killer Kind logo. I have had a few people ask for merch over the 
years and I wouldn't technically consider this merch, but it's something I hope you guys like. I'll be looking into more merch in the future, like other kinds of merch. If you have any suggestions as to what you might like, whether that's t-shirts, coffee mugs, koozies, anything at all, shoot me a message. And one final note, the podcast is on Audible. A cousin of mine said he listened to his podcast on there and of course his audiobooks as well and asked if I could put the podcast on Audible. So I figured it out <laughs> and now you can listen there as well. There are just so many places to listen to podcasts these days. So I'm sure I'm missing some of them. If you notice that I'm not on a platform that you like or that your friends like, let me know and I can check it out. And I just want to say thank you guys so much for listening and supporting the podcast in any way that you do, whether that's listening, buying a sticker, interacting on our socials, leaving a review, or just following or subscribing wherever you can. Anything helps show your support and that means the world. It definitely keeps me going. Thank you guys so much. Now I'll be back next time with a brand new episode. Until then, stay safe. Bye.